0: Uh, good afternoon. Uh, I'm Jason Summers, and uh, I'm a physicist by training. I, in the interest of disclosure, I want to note that the things I'm talking about are technologies that I worked on the development of. And so you'll note there's a very extensive disclosure that explains these are my personal opinions and that the information I'm presenting is public information because of the nature of the technologies. So in, in the first talk of this session this morning, George mentioned that there's new ethical implications coming about uh, because of new technologies, in particular for just war. And the technology he mentioned was the Predator drone, which I think of as uh, sort of teleoperated or telemediated warfare. This is something of a parallel issue to that, and it's enabled by that. And this is the use of simulation, so computationally intensive simulation, for the training of military personnel and the new ethical issues that are brought about by that uh, capability. So... To lay out the dilemma, essentially, there's a tension, an essential tension that happens in, for government and military leaders, because they're faced with this choice between two competing obligations. And the first is that they must ensure the readiness of the military forces through training. The military must protect the nation, and then they're obligated, it's a normative function of the military to be able to do that. So they must ensure that readiness through training, but at the same time, the government and uh, military leaders, have a normative function to steward and protect human, natural, fiscal resources. That is to say, doing an exercise costs money, it endangers lives, it potentially harm the environment, and so forth. And so this tension always goes on in the case of any operating military. And so I want to lay that out in some greater detail. In general, the normative requirement of the military is to respond to acts of aggression that endanger life and property. And so that requires two things. Both there must be readiness. They need to be able to effectually respond to an external threat, to detect it and to uh, address it in some way. And they also have have to have some level of proficiency. That is to say that the military has to be able to do its job and do it well when it's called upon to do so. And so the lack of training or if uh, somehow forces are poorly trained, that somehow prevents that normative function. Things could uh, not go as they are supposed to, or they could uh, go poorly in some way that actually now uh, leads to some unjustified damage of life and property. At the same time, uh, well, let, let me talk about that in some more detail here. Um, and that's grounded, this use of the military and the role of the military. I, I like to ground in, in the traditional uh, just war tradition, this, this theory that's been developed really since uh, the early days of the church fathers. And it, in particular, I'm interested in Justin Bellow, and that's the Uh, those sort of laws that govern the just use of force during conflict and that sort of governs the ethical behavior of combatants. In particular, uh, combatants need to exercise distinction. That is to say that they're limiting their aggression toward legitimate targets, that they are exercising proportionality. That is that they are Scaling the level of force uh, to the uh, appro- to be appropriate relative to the anticipated consequences of those threats. That is to say, uh, I don't attack someone coming at me with a, uh, a fist. With a, with a, you don't bring a, a gun to a knife fight, right? And then at the same time, also, uh, subjective right intention. And that is that uh, the use of force excludes all of the sort of evil purposes for which one might use... Uh, uh, force that we're not doing this because of sort of uh, lust for blood, love of violence, and, and these things come out of Augustine, what he calls the real evils of war. Although uh, war is a necessary evil in some ways that must be justified, the real evils of it are these actions, the sort of evil actions of the heart that are potential in the combatants themselves. So, uh, in addition, I would add to this, and this is down there at the bottom, that also it's desirable to reduce the total casualties due to enemy aggression we, in, a, in a because of the value of human life that we just talked about um, not only do we want to ensure that these particular principles are exercised during the course of combat but also that casualties are limited both due to enemy aggression and due to so called friendly fire, due to accidental injury and all of these things are carried about in training uh, one is sort of morally educated in those through practice with the sort of tools of warfare. Now, at the same time, government has a normative requirement for what I broadly called stewardship. And that is to say that uh, government is charged, the normative function of it, is to safeguard those resources that are shared in common by the uh, political community, what's sometimes called the commons in, in economic parlance. And then they also have to, because they are fiduciaries of funds that they collect from us, they have to wisely exercise that duty in control of those fiscal resources. And so, in doing so, the aspect of that that relates to military exercises is that they need to mitigate the costs and risks of deployment. An exercise involves sending military personnel out somewhere to do something with some devices. You know, a, a ship, a plane, so forth. Uh, and so there's, there's human costs to that. There are real risks that can be incurred when people are involved using these technologies or in an exercise. There are environmental causes. I, I was just visiting my family, and they had the Blue Angels, which is the, the Navy's flight uh, squadron that does these precision flying. The amount of fuel they use is very difficult to conceive of. So there are uh, immediate environmental costs. And there's also economic costs. Uh, when we exercise using equipment, that equipment wears out. And so this tension, then, is an essential one that always has to be dealt with. So what I want to give as an example here is one very close and one I'm going to continue to come back to, the example of active sonar and marine mammals. And here the risk is somewhat, I'm going to focus on a particular part of this tension, and that is security risk. That is to say, uh, security risk of the uh, littoral, that is the shallow water area surrounding the United States borders versus the environmental risk that may be incurred because of the use of sonar. And so, the basic uh, sort of story there is that the concern over quiet submarines operating in these environments motivated the use of increased active sonar. There was evidence that that mid-frequency active sonar may have been causing detrimental effects to whales, to marine mammals. And then that, that whole conflict, which some of you may have followed, came sort of culminated in a 2008 Supreme Court hearing between NRDC and then the Secretary of the Navy. And in writing the uh, decision for the majority, uh, Justice Roberts wrote that explicitly sort of addressed this tension, this tension between the two responsibilities, normative responsibilities of the government in this. So they both acknowledged the ecological concerns regarding the marine mammals, but at the same time felt that in sort of the balance of interests there, lay with the Navy's need to conduct realistic training to ensure readiness. And that's what he says here in this quote. Uh, At the same time, there was a point that military interests do not always trump the others, but just in this case, it's quite uh, straightforward. And so they sided with the Secretary of the Navy in this case and lifted uh, a ban that had been imposed in California. But what's important to note here is this is a very narrow addressing of the issue. In fact, the full scope of risks that I outlined a little bit earlier is much broader than this, just this tension between environmental harm and readiness. In fact, there's other things. There's financial costs, and there are human costs, and so forth. So because of that factor, um, in fact, the government has been increasingly turning toward simulation-based training as a means for resolving that tension. So I, because some of you may not be familiar with this technology, I want to describe it just in very brief here. Uh, the basic concept is that computer-generated virtual environments, you can think of anything from a video game to full-scale virtual reality, or a a physics-based supercomputer recreation of some part of the environment, uh, is used to either augment or replace some aspect of the real environment. And then that virtual environment is interfaced by the same um, training interfaces um, that somehow either are mimicking or replicating what actually would be experienced in a real training scenario. So the goal there is to attempt to achieve training objectives. That is to say, secure the level of readiness that is one normative obligation, but at the same time minimize those risks associated with um, environmental, human, economic costs. And so it's been sought quite actively to do that. Uh, there may be other benefits as well that I've outlined there. The idea of availability, flexibility, perhaps pedagogical goals uh, might be achieved there that could not be achieved in a real-life system. But the question then is, perhaps is this even an ethical imperative? And I'm indebted to um, uh, associate at, at uh, McMaster, Ruth Chen, for pointing out that in the medical community, this same tension exists between the need for doctors to be prepared in order to perform what they do. And at the same time, they need to not put patients under risk while they're training to do that. Training on a real patient incurs risk to the patient. Having an untrained doctor operator on you incurs risk to the patient. So uh, quite relatively recently, 2003, Ziv et al. have argued that in fact, simulation-based uh, training for medical education is in fact an ethical obligation as a means of resolving this similar tension in the medical field. In many ways, I think it has that same character when addressing the, um, the military realm because that, these same normative functions are at play, although here the, the, those people who are experiencing the risk are not necessarily the same people as those who might suffer harm from the training itself, uh, but it's very much analogous. So I think something that I want to ask a little bit, and then now I'll go into in some more detail, Is is this an ethical imperative for military training and then what are the implications from that? So, in general, I think the government has said, we feel this is an ethical imperative. It's also a financial advantage. And so, if you were to look at this, uh, just this is just a really brief summary of recent policy. In 2002, the GAO uh, cited the DOD for not really counting these other costs, these external costs, the second risk, risk to environment, human, and so forth, as part of the cost of training. And in response to that, in addition to things like the 2008 Supreme Court suit, you've seen a huge increase in the amount of spending on simulation-based training by the Department of Defense. And uh, it's really difficult to get these numbers. These are public numbers. And what you see, though, is that it's a huge scale and it's projected to become even larger. This is some consulting findings. And notably, that final point there is that, despite the fact that the Supreme Court lifted the injunction in 2008, in fact what we'll see is the United States Navy has actually introduced simulation-based training for the same sonar system that they were allowed to use for real training in 2008. And they'll be introducing that at the end of this year, in the fiscal year 2011. So in my mind, this is actually a very um, positive action that, the, that is being taken by the military, in this case, to resolve those in a way. It's a, it's a, what I would consider, at least naively, responsible use of technology, because it enables government to enact both of these normative functions simultaneously. But I want to ask that question more explicitly. We know, is this really a responsible technology? And when I say that, I'm, I'm using a framework... This is a framework uh, that uh, Steve Monsma has has put forth many years ago. And and those of you familiar with sort of the um, neo-Calvinist Doiverdian project will will recognize some of these things. And I don't think you necessarily have to. I have my doubts about that as much as anyone else. But I think this is a very useful framework to start to ask those questions. The first question, of course, is is there in red. And the idea is that the, the question that one must ask is, is there an actual need for which a technological solution is appropriate? And I think Ziv et al., and I, I would argue too, yes, this is, an, this is indeed a real ethical dilemma, and technology helps to resolve it. It helps uh, an entity, in this case the government, to better fulfill its normative role. But does it satisfy these other normative requirements? And, and what Monsma lays out is uh, a couple criteria there, and I'll return to these throughout the rest of the talk. The idea of transparency. Are the capabilities and limits of the technology clearly communicated? Stewardship? Uh, this notion that is there an appropriate use of resources through the cycle of the, uh, technology and by the tech, and does it somehow, uh, contribute to stewardship? Harmony, by that I mean, is it fit for its use? Does it achieve, in fact, the function that it intends to achieve? And does it help in maintaining right relationship, right? Which, which is sort of a shorthand for shalom, right? Does it help to maintain the created order in the appropriate manner? Justice, is we've heard a lot about today, and it's the same notion as in the first talk this morning, is it ensuring that all things get their due, that equals receive equal treatment. Safekeeping is the idea of care. That, so we go beyond that, that Christian ethic is more than just justice, but it's also care for the other. And then assurance is simply sort of the idea of trust, that we can trust this, that it provides what you, you said it will do, and that, in fact, uh, I have a sense of dependability and, and safety in its use. And so within that framework, the things that I want to talk about late uh, in this next little bit are, are there, in fact, uh, new ethical issues that are brought about by the use of simulation-based training? And I would suggest that there are, and I've grouped them into three uh, broad categories. The first is efficacy. That is, that it may, in fact, have negative effect on the acquisition of skills. It might actually not do its primary role that we first decided it was ethically imperative that we embark on this endeavor for. And then secondly, what I've called ontology. That is that, and this is just sort of a fundamental notion of simulation-based training. When using a simulation-based trainer, one is engaging with a virtual environment that is perceptually veridical. It's just like real life. And in some cases, it's indistinguishable from real life. But it is not the same in terms of its nature. It lacks consequence for action. If I accidentally sink another ship there's no consequence for it because it's just uh, a number of numbers on a computer. And then representation. And that is the sense that virtual environments are technological artifacts. Someone created them. Someone wrote computer code. Someone started to understand the physics and someone made choices about what was encased in those. And then what they portray um, involves ethical choices. So now I want to work through that. And again I'm going to turn to this case study of sonar training. And just in schematic, The idea is that um, real-time simulation, well, in sonar training, the principal technology is that one is using a supercomputer to do real-time simulation of the physical ocean environment. And there's a couple examples that I've listed there of the trainers that are used. But the idea is that the scenario, the environment, all the physical processes are described, and then that output feeds the same kind of technologically mediated interfaces that someone using a sonar device would actually use on a real submarine. So now let's start to look at those three potential ethical uh, concerns I have. The first is efficacy. Might this, in fact, fail to replicate real-life scenarios with sufficient fidelity? Uh, if it does, then it might not achieve the training effectiveness that it wants to. And so the idea is that there might be absent cues and so forth. These things are generally thought about in this community, um, and there's a number of risks associated with that. But I think those are important when we start to think about these within that framework, because it risks this notion of transparency, the notion of harmony, and the notion of assurance. But more, I think, in terms of an issue that has not been thought about in great detail yet, is this ontological question. The core experience of simulation-based training is habituation to these no- or low-risk simulations of what are, in fact, very high-risk scenarios in the real world. And my concern is that this somehow might impede moral development, which is one of the primary functions of training. Um, And in particular, there's two ways that this training can happen, either as a pure virtual environment, and the problem there, I said, well, the emperor wears no clothes, right? The idea is I'm training on a risky situation, but I know that it's not real, right? I can turn it off and go home. And and this this has been talked about quite a bit in the sense of technologically mediated warfare. Peter uh, W. Singer. not. The uh, ethicist Peter Singer, Uh, but Peter at at Brookings has has been addressing this a little bit. But then also there's a somewhat more insidious problem, and that is mixed environments. So in this situation, the problem is that the threat is simulated, but the rest of the world is not. And in this case, only the enemy wears no clothes, right? Only the enemy is somehow fake. And there's there's a spectrum of this that people in the virtual reality community talk about. And I've showed that at the bottom, but it's not particularly critical that if you're not familiar with that, just this idea that you can have quite a fluid uh, continuity between these Thanks. And so I think this threatens this idea of harmony, justice, and safekeeping. So, And the reason for that is, in particular, the framework I'd like to think about this in is is within uh, moral equality of combatants uh, or the moral equity of combatants. And this comes out of the just war tradition. Uh, I've quoted Ambrose there. But the basic idea is that justice is that the treatment of the other must exist always, even within warfare. And there's uh, Walter, who was mentioned in one of the earlier talks today, talks about thick and thin notions of this. But what's critical here, uh, I'm going to skip through some of the details of this, but the idea is that we recognize, even in warfare, that the enemy, that the the person against whom we are fighting, has the same anthropological status as ourselves and has the same value as, uh, as a human being. So then the question is, in a mixed ontological status, in what I talked about is only the enemy wears no clothes, when we have everything being real, but the enemy being simulated, we have a problematic situation in which the actions taken against threats, against enemies, are not real in the same sense as the actions taken against other things in the environment. And I am concerned that that might have uh, moral problems both in terms of this moral anthrop- uh, moral equality that I mentioned before, that we've created different anthropological standing of these entities that we're training ourselves to interact with, and then in the sense of justice. The ontological status is parsed out in different ways to otherwise equals, equals that we believe have the same anthropological and human value. Now, there is some sense from a recent literature that virtual environments can evoke the same feelings of moral responsibility um, that real environments can. And this if you're interested in this, please ask me about it because it's more uh, detailed than I want to go into at this point. And then finally, this notion of representation. The idea, and I think uh, Paul Ford says it very well, a virtual environment by nature is an ideology manifested. When we create a representation of the world that is artificial, that is computational, that is based on our science, we're really manifesting what we believe about the real world. So there's a couple issues within that. Um, Virtual enemies. Now, it may be desirable in training to involve wartime acts against states that are not declared enemies, and I'll talk about that in some more detail. Uh, There's the danger that our war is contextless. Within the just war tradition, we need to motivate war. We, it's justified war, as I think uh, George said at the, in the first talk today, and I think it's a really good point. War is never just, but it can be justified. But in a training scenario, it need not be provided with justification. And then there's the danger of reductionism. We're representing the world within a box, and that box may be somewhat incomplete relative to what we believe is really true about people. So let, let me just touch on those real quickly. In terms of virtual enemies, it can be uh, pedagogically expedient, but also maybe even pedagogically necessary to model specific rather than sort of notional foreign platforms. I'm modeling a particular submarine, not a notional submarine, so that a particular skill can be taught. Well, this is problematic because now the people engaging in this training have repeated enactments of war against potential threats who are not actual threats. So does this affect moral development? Do I begin to see someone who is not my enemy as my enemy? And then there's the phenomena that that was uh, quite publicized maybe 20 years ago now where uh, Iran air flight was down by a a cruiser called scenario fulfillment. And that is under stressful conditions, learned scenarios can result in the blocking or distorting of information. So one may see what one has trained on, even though that's not what is being displayed. So there's, I think, some uh, sort of consequentialist threats there, but also some moral threats. And then finally, uh, reductionism. So when we represent things, we are making choices about uh, what we're showing. And I've broken that up into three areas. The idea of justice that is representation bias. I may be biased in my representation of an enemy or some aspect of the environment. So it can exclude, quote-unquote, unimportant entities, perhaps marine mammals or something that we don't view to be important, fishermen, um, or create caricatures of entities. They may not behave in realistic ways or in ways that reflect uh, not their full anthropological status. Uh, the, again, that problem of moral equality comes about because we, may not, uh, we are obligated recognizing the equality of even a virtual combatant because they represent someone real. Uh, unjust representations can uh, preclude that. And then f- uh, finally, this notion of implicit narratives. That is to say, by choosing what can happen or what the action and response are, we could in some way create a particular narrative that carries out, and that's also uh, reductionistic. So finally, I have some recommendations. I think as Christians we have to go beyond a sort of consequentialist or teleological ethic to not just say, well, if if something in our simulation or something about this technology were to lead to adverse effects, we must reject it. But rather, I think we have to use a framework Uh, like Monsma's or someone else's, to begin to examine how these technologies themselves relate to normative principles about how humans interact both during and in preparation for war. So I would suggest that a simulation-based trainer should emphasize the gravity of war, not the entertainment value, and that's certainly something that's being entertained right now, Uh, no pun intended, but the entertainment value is being considered, and I'm not sure that's good. Uh, Scenario design should consistently reflect just war theory. I think that that has to be enforced explicitly to give this sense of gravity and for moral formation. Uh, I think scenarios and debriefing should also enforce the concepts of just war theory as related to how combatants behave during war. Also, because of the sort of moral threats incurred by simulation-based trainings, because of these ontological issues, I think it may be useful to do isolated skill training with actual threat-like entities in a lower-fidelity environment that doesn't feel like the real world but gives the same pedagogical effect. Um, And in other cases, one might instead uh, try to have fidelity that achieves realistic moral responses. So there's a judgment call there. But perhaps being mindful of how fidelity affects that. And then I also think that um, although there's been a little work done in this area, that really a lot more psychological studies on moral development are warranted. There's been a lot of things done on this as relates to violent video games, and there's still quite a debate about it. Every, every time I look for new articles, I see there's a new special issue on it. But this is a somewhat separate question because people are not uh, impersonal. This is not a virtual world, uh, multiplayer game. It's, in fact, people living out the actions that they will later do. Uh, and I think that really deserves some attention. And that's it. Thank you.